Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living So Bop. Busy Living So Bop. Busy Living So Bop. Episode 246. 246. 246. I can never remember. I always have to go back and look and be like, wait, what was the last one? It's 245. Oh, that's right. So this is 246 with Pete Sousa, originally a good old boy from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. How are you, Pete? I'm awesome. I'm I'm, uh, energized by that intro. Don't you love it? I do love it. Yeah, I do. I love your charisma. Um, I love it. Yeah. I have this crazy song. I know that somebody, some, I have a friend whose kids sing it now, sing the song. Busy living sober. So getting busy living sober. So the funny thing is that I met Pete, how many years ago did I meet you? Eight years ago? Well, you met me before that. I remember you. You don't remember me because I tried to get sober. Um, a couple times, so, and I remember going into to a, a meeting, and because and, you know you remember the attractive girls when you're a guy that goes to meetings. So I was like, oh yeah, look at that. Um, yeah, so I remember you, and I remember you know we have connections like with I went to grade school with your sister and your brother, uh, and so yeah, I mean I knew who you were probably before you knew who I was, but yeah, we met. I mean nine, when, yeah, I guess like I I went to rehab. And then an extended care place and mess, was working in, in uh, North Jersey in New York. And then I moved back home probably a year and a half sober. So probably seven and a half years ago. Yeah. We met and it was like, it's like he's my little brother. I swear. I love For him. Sure. And he has an amazing story. And since day one, I remember you wanting, I was getting certified as a recovery coach. You're like, I might do that. Let's do that. We and sat down and talked about it. And, and it was one of those things. It was like when you. I always tell people, it's like when I was talking to my sponsor, it was like, you have white light moments. And I remember exactly where I was sitting and I felt so good talking about uh, doing stuff like that. Yeah, you, you do a great job of, of uh, recruiting people and making it look very uh, attractive. Well, will you tell us what it was like, what happened? What yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you want me to just start, like, like start? Like, yeah. I mean, start, and if I feel like interrupting, I'll interrupt you, but I hope not to interrupt you because your story is really fascinating. And I wanted to say one thing to the listeners. He's got to put on the, the part when you were standing in that dark spot and somebody very big and tall came and touched you. And he's very big and tall. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You, ask me any questions you want, by the way, along the way. But uh, I always tell people, um, you know, first of all, my sobriety date is November 7th, 2011. Uh, and you know, alcoholism is all over my dad's side of the family. It's all over. And, uh, you know, people would say, I've heard this before in meetings, alcoholism doesn't run in my family, it gallops. And that's like, and my dad's side of the family, that's was definitely the case. But I mean, you know, I had a great, I had a great existence as a kid. My, my I had two older brothers who kind of paved the way for me socially. Uh, and then my dad and mom did an incredible job. I mean, they, you know, they did the best they could, uh, which which I grew up, you know, same place you did, right outside of Philadelphia on the main line. Um, it was a good place to live. <laughs> it's not a bad place to grow up. So, uh, I mean, I uh, I don't know. I, I, I Although there was alcoholism around, my dad was a functional alcoholic. Like when he came home, I always say like the records would skip. Like when he came home from work, like people knew the album, he was home. Uh, you'd get like tight and he'd like be, you know, he'd be yelling about a, a cushion not being on the couch. Uh, and it was, a, it was a very like sometimes a, a stressful environment to grow up in. But at the same time, he was very loving. Um, he was always there. He always showed up. He was just a very functional alcoholic, a very functional alcoholic. Uh, he never really got deep. Uh, just wasn't his deal, old school guy. And, uh, you know, but there was alcoholism there. And, but I always say the first time I ever experienced drugs or alcohol, yeah, I was a feisty kid and uh, I had ADD. And I was like beginning kind of at the forefront of that movement where they were describing kids. This is like the mid eighties. Uh, so kids were getting prescribed or, or uh, they were getting um, diagnosed as ADD and prescribed like Ritalin. And I can remember going to the principal's office at St. Thomas Good Council uh, outside of Philadelphia to get the riddle in at lunch. And I can remember taking it and feeling like I have a, like a vision, an overall vision of taking that and feeling like turned on. I mean, not every day, but I definitely remember like after the principal's office, I'll feel better. Um, 
and just like I did after I woke up in the morning and I took it. Uh, and it was a couple of things. I think we're well, looking back now, just with the experience and the knowledge I have through recovery, I was, I felt like I always had to take something to be something, which was a screwed up feeling like it really played on that last end thing um, that I had going uh, as a, a young alcoholic. And, uh, you know, too, there was that, that affected me differently than I think it did the average person. People take those, those medicines and medications and they work for them. That was not the case for me. Um, it, I'm not saying it didn't work, but it definitely made me feel, you know, very different. And it turned on me down the road, you know, and, and that's, I'll get to that, but, you know, so that's the first like controlled substance I remember taking and feeling, um, a reaction from it. And then I got to, I got to high school and I, uh, one of the things I always say too, is when I was in eighth grade, I was really nervous going to dances, going to like the St. Thomas dance. That's where I went to school or the St. God forbid, I went to a dance at another school. I was like, Oh my God, this is like, I couldn't believe people would do this. How do you talk to girls? I don't know what to do. And uh, I mean, I literally felt like the biggest loser, like for whatever reason. And we do this as people today. We give other people superpowers, like the kid from the other school that's popular. I, I, I decided he was Superman, you know, and I was just like some, some peasant. And I made up my mind that that was the case. And so that was it. And so... The next year when I started to drink, I became Superman. Like I can remember, good. I want to go back to something. Yeah. But the one thing you keep, you skipped is that you were a really good athlete. Hmm. That's a huge thing I want yeah. to put out there. So yeah. you have ADHD, at least yeah. they, they, the people have said you have that, even though you're just a boy and have a lot of energy. So you have ADHD and they're giving you Ritalin or whatever it is and you're going and then you're also playing sports and you're like a rock star, star athlete. I'm, I mean, Pete is an amazing yeah. athlete. So I, I don't want to not, I don't want to forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, that's a huge part of my story. And part of that too, Biz, is that, you know, I started to, I started to drink, um, you know, in ninth grade and sophomore year in high school. And that's when I really started to, start to kind of um, experience success playing sports, you know, on the high school level, when you're like, okay, maybe this is something I want to continue to do. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'll have the skills to do it. But the moment I started to drink, um, the, 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 the ath athletics, the love for the athletics um, took a backseat and the drinking became the number one um, and the drinking and the girls, right? Because alcohol let me talk to girls. Um, and it made me, it, it gave me the ability to, you know, I thought I, I thought I it gave me, I thought I needed it to talk to, to women and stuff like that because it made me nervous. Um, but then, yeah, to what you're saying, um, I started to play sports and I started to get good at football and I started to get recruited um, to play football in college. And I was like, whoa. And that's another thing, too. Like, there was a lot of ego involved. Uh, I loved the adulation that came. I love the adulation that came with being a good athlete more so than I did the competition. And that was not the case early on in my life. I loved the competition. Uh, but now I saw that I was, you know, the, the, the good feeling I was getting from that. It just pumped my ego up. So, you know, I get a scholarship and I'm going to play at the University of Richmond because I got a full scholarship and I'm going to play in an all-star game, a city all-star game. And uh, this doctor is giving me a physical and he's like, hey, man, um, your heart is beating like irregularly you have some kind of arrhythmia so if you're going to play in this game you got to see a cardiologist i want you to get checked out so i, I went down to penn i this doctor evan Lowe looked at me uh and i remember the moment i was on the treadmill getting the ekg um uh, oh no getting the stress test and uh, i remember this guy dr Lowe, looking at his like assistant um this woman named kim who was awesome and uh they both were like Eesh. We got a situation here. I remember thinking like something is wrong with me. And, uh, you know, consultation, they talked to me. I had, I was told I had cardiomyopathy and I wasn't going to be able to play football. Uh, you know, th this was my identity and the, the real al alcoholic part of this comes into play when I'm asked or I'm told you could have gotten this one of two ways. It could have been viral where your body has an illness for so long, the illness goes away like, like a flu and the flu goes away and your body fights, starts to attack your organs. That's viral cardiomyopathy. Or you could have gotten it by abuse of drugs and alcohol. And, uh, you know, all over the course of the second half of my senior year, 
I, I discovered prescription drugs. My mom is like a normal person. So she would get a prescription for like, you know, codeine or, or whatever. And just like, she wouldn't finish it. Well, I, found, I discovered this like treasure trove when I was a senior and, and I would go into high school flying. I would take these red capsules called Tylox. I would be like out of my mind and nobody knew. I was like the superstar athlete. So, and then I would take Ritalin when I was in school and then we'd smoke pot afterwards and then we'd drink during the, in the middle of the week. And all this time I'm working out and it damaged my heart. Um, I believe, I believe it still could have, there's a possibility it could have been viral, but I'm, I'm no dummy as far as like, you know, I, I, I'm accountable in this whole thing. So were you ever scared because that, or do you think that because at such a young age, you were introduced to pill that it was okay. Cause weren't you scared? Like I would be petrified if I went into, cause when I grew, I'm a little bit older than you. So parents were <laughs> Yeah. But parents weren't doing you know what i mean and they didn't nobody got the adhd you were just the kid that was always in trouble right yeah, there was yeah. in my era so were you scared at all when you went and you saw that codeine or whatever you were taking that no was I, I did not think anything of it I, I really and that's also like the disease part right i mean it's like no i was not scared i was excited i i felt like i had and and, and i really was so screwed up I didn't think there was anything wrong with it at first. I thought I just figured it out. You know, I was like, oh, good. This is great. I figured this out. I mean, I'm still social. I'm so, I, I had no clue. I mean, there's nothing dumber than like a 17-year-old junkie. I mean, there is nothing, you know, like, because junkies are dumb to begin with. And when I was a 17-year-old without any stuff, I was dumb. So there's just nothing, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, so I, I'll, I'll go on. I, um, you know, oh, I couldn't play sports like, you know, and, and one thing you said when you asked me if I was ever scared, you know, and I was never scared of my heart because I was never really I didn't allow myself time to get scared of anything because I knew alcohol or drugs could take away that fear. So I was just constantly I mean, I had look, I've managed in high school, in college. I mean, I was a pothead. I didn't I, I, I stayed away from uppers probably 95 percent of the time in college because I was scared about my heart. I was like, okay, I need to respect that. But I'm, I got so drunk all the time. And, you know, I was, I was actually dating a woman or girl, right. When I was, uh, when I, <laughs> I wasn't dating women, then I was dating a girl and I was just, and I was a senior in college and I really liked her, but I, I was at her dorm room once. Uh, and she went to school in, uh, in, in, in Nashville. And, uh, is that her? No. So, <laughs> So um, we, uh, anyways, I, I, I like convinced her to give me an Adderall or whatever, because we've been drinking all day. And I remember taking that as a senior and I was like, oh my gosh, like I have, I've found it again. It was the same feeling like I did when I was a senior in high school. And so that's, I, I, I was really hooked on speed from that moment forward because I found something that I could drink as much as I wanted to with. And that didn't give you that heart racing feeling at all that you were like, oh my gosh, this is, I mean, this isn't good. If it ever did, I would just like double or triple my alcohol consumption, which was already skyrocketing. Because you shake your head as the phone rings. People are calling you. You can't get mad at them. You're a popular person. Busy living, right? getting busy, and she's just like trying to ignore everything. <laughs> so look, so, so basically, um, no, the heart racing feeling never really happened to me because I was always like drinking so much, so mellowed out. And honestly, I was asymptomatic. That's a big part of my story. Um, so I could, I was still always running. I looked healthy um, and I was still pretty much active, but I managed, you know, I got through college because I was affiliated with the football team um, and I had great resources there. And those guys, one, they don't want the kid who's on, getting a free ride. They kept me on scholarship because they're great guys. My coach, this guy, Jim Reed, kept me on scholarship. But they were also not going to let the guy that was basically was just coasting, like not graduate or fail. You know, like they were like, this guy's not going to get in trouble. Like, let's just get him the hell out of here. So they made sure I went to class. Um, you know, I was affiliated with the team. I filmed practice. and um, But I would film practice. I would smoke pot before most of the practices. I'd go out there and film. I'd do a terrible job. I would, like, impersonate coaches on the film. They would hear me. It was like... It was a circus. We had one guy, one of um, the guy who's the defensive coordinator for the Jacksonville Jaguars who recruited me. This guy named Joe Cullen um, was our, our uh, defensive line coach at the time at Richmond. And I remember him looking up at me in the tower 
when I was filming. I think I had my, my shirt off and I had my feet up. I had flip-flops on and he's like, this is a circus, you know? Like, um, and it was kind of, it kind of was. Uh, but I made incredible, and it's cool too, you know, getting sober and reaching out to people like Coach Cullen um, and letting them know him. So, I mean, it's, that is like one of the greatest rewards. I mean, I've reconnected with everybody from the Richmond football program. Um, so anyways, to get back on track, I get out of, I get out of high school. I mentioned that I was, uh, or got out of college, I graduated. I mentioned that I kind of rediscovered a prescription drugs and uh, I was off to the races. I got a job. I lived in Philly for like about, about three or four months. There was a lot of ecstasy involved in that time. It was like 1999, um, 2000. And I remember that's the one drug I can really remember taking. And be, I loved it, but I was like, this is, it's making me dumber. You know, the next day I would just be like, look at that. Yeah. yeah. Like I got hit by a train. What was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to somebody about it today. It's like you, the next day you go for a run or you go to play tennis, like even two days later, you'd be like, what the hell is wrong with my body? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, but, and so luckily, uh, and this is one of the things too, I was, in, I thought I was very entitled, you know, born on third base, thought I had a triple. I heard somebody else say that, you know, raised in a good area, uh, good enough athlete where he got a scholarship. I had two brothers paved the way for me socially. I did not understand gratitude or, um, and I certainly didn't understand hard work. And I got another uh, opportunity. I got moved to New York when I was uh, probably six months out of college. Uh, I worked with one of my best friends. We worked in New York City and it was like, it was incredible. I mean, I moved up there. The moment I wa was walking down like 7th Avenue in New York, I was like, that Russia in itself, you know, it was like, again, it's like the fall of like 1999. I'm like walking down New York. I was like, holy, like, this is, I want to be here forever. This is all I want to do. Um, and because it, it was a, an adrenaline rush and this is without drugs. Uh, then I started to do drugs and it was game over. And, you know, I started to, you know, there was a lot of Coke involved. Um, I won't tell you about it. There was just a lot involved. And, uh, you know, it was just my addictive personality, just like the speed. The moment I did that, I was like, well, I'm going to do this forever, you know, for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so I partied my, basically the, the company I was working for got bought out. Things got better. I was living on the Upper East Side in New York City, 63rd between Park and Lex at 22. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had no clue. I had no clue how good I had it. And, uh, you know, I just partied my way right out of the city, right back home. Um, you know, basically I like, like, like they didn't want me to work there anymore. I, I moved to Boston. We moved to Boston. Then I pioneered to move back to New York because I loved to, to party there. And finally this company was like, things had gotten bad and they started to lose money and people were getting let go. And they were like, all right, you can go too, dude. And it was weird because I was at the forefront of this company. Um, you know, for a while. Uh, it wasn't very big, but it, things were going very well for a little bit. And, uh, you know, so that was one of those things too, another ego blow, you drink on that. And, but this is my first, the first time I discover recovery. I'm back home and uh, my parents, you know, I'm living with my parents now because uh, I've got nothing. And I'm kind of like keeping up a little bit of like a shell game. Like I'm trying to, I remember telling somebody I was going to grad school. I had no clue what I was going to do. It's like, I'm going to go to grad school and be a psychologist. And this person who I told was sober. And they were like, this guy's like out of his mind. Like nobody needs him as a psychologist. And uh, so anyways, I got a DUI uh, when I was living with my parents. My parents, you know, fell asleep like normal people do. And I stole the keys to one of the cars. I drove down to the city to party. I drove the car up on a medium. Um, and I, you know, had a consequence with the law. And that started my whole experience in recovery. I, I didn't, I wasn't ready, but I was like, you know, I need to stop. Uh, because I came home the next morning, my mom was bawling, crying, the jig was up, right? So I started to go to meetings and this is 2002. And, uh, you know, my life started to change. I started to, I got a sponsor. Um, you know, I was believing in the program. Uh, I was probably sober, stone cold sober for 90 days. And then I was at a party I was at my and my friends knew that I was sober that I was so messed up they weren't going to allow me to drink but I talked them into let me smoke pot with them one day because I had that I just wasn't all in in the program and uh, you know I, I go to meetings you know uh 12-step meetings and you know AA I'm not a representative of the program but it certainly has worked for me uh and I was never all the way in and so I 
wanted to be a part of. I felt like I was left out with my friends. I was young. I wasn't ready. It wasn't God's plan. Luckily, I made it back. A lot of people have that story where they go out and they die, you know, because I would have died or gotten sober. That wasn't, there was no, there's no diff, there's no alternative for me because I kind of put my life back together. And in a sense where I stopped drinking for 90 or I stopped drinking for a year, but like for, you know, nine months, I'm smoking pot and I got a job in Colorado working for USA basketball. And I get to Colorado, the moment the plane touches down, I start to drink again, like, you know, sort of manageable. It's like the first time you drink, it's not like the police, the sirens aren't ringing us. They don't show up right away. But eventually they do, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll do it. Nothing bad's happened. Look, I had one. There's no, there's no metal around my wrist. There's nobody chasing me. Yeah, I mean, all it takes is one night for the shit not to hit the fan, and that's all. That's all an alcoholic like like me needed. And uh, I, 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 I literally, I continued to have to have managed. I managed some success. You know, I got a job like I said, at USA Basketball. And, uh, you know, I traveled um, around parts of the world to go with, like, I, I was, like, the main public relations contact for this women's basketball team. Um, I remember we went, it was funny, I remember we went to Puerto Rico, um, and I really started to drink there because we were in a pretty cool hotel. We stayed in Miami, we stayed in Denver, we stayed in Puerto Rico, and, uh, and I kept it together. I mean, I did, a like, a really good job. Um, but, but I was definitely drinking, hitting it hard at night, and... Uh, that was like kind of, a, I remember thinking like, this is getting bad. Like, cause every night I was drinking cause I was on my own. Um, and uh, I got a job in Charlotte doing PR for the Hornets, the basketball team there. Uh, and then I was, I really got back into the drugs there a little bit and uh, not a little bit, I did. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I was probably about to lose my job there. Um, again, I was doing public relations there. You're traveling with the team. You're having contact with all the guys while I was there. Michael Jordan bought the team. Like you're having interactions with him limited, but I mean, you're, you are, you're around him. And uh, it was amazing. Um, you know, like I, it was a, it was a great experience and I was, ha I'm happy that I was kind of with it for a portion of, you know, a good portion of that experience. But then I got a job in Philly working for the Sixers. So I'm back with all my old haunts, all my old stomping grounds. And my friends could tell I was screwed up, you know? Uh, they, they could tell, like I was going back down to the city and partying. I moved to a place down in the city. I reconnected with a woman that I went to college with. Awesome person, awesome person. Now she was actually in a phase in her life where she just was going to party for a little while. Um, I was in my, <laughs> I was in like, this is where I live. Like you're perfect for me. Um, and, uh, eventually she was like, dude, like you got to stop or we can't like, you know, see each other anymore. Um, and you know, we didn't see each other anymore cause I didn't stop. And, but, but I always tell people too, um, you know, lower companions, right? Like you're, you're with this girl, then you're with this girl because you want to be with people who do things like you do them, you know? Yeah. Sorted places, lower companions. That's where I found myself. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I had no clue what was going on with me. Um, and then I fell ass backwards. I lost the job with the Sixers. They eliminated my position, but I mean, like they just wanted to eliminate me. I can promise you that. Uh, and I had made a lot of great friends there. Um, and I've made a lot of incredible reconnections there in, in the nine and a half years since I've been sober, which has been like unbelievable. Uh, Cause some of those people have really helped me along my way. And, you know, and then we'll talk about that cause I'm, I'm about to get to the recovery. I was in Charlotte. I got a job back in Charlotte working for the Hornets, doing radio for them. I just kind of, I continue to talk my way into stuff, you know? And I mean, then it got awful. It got awful down there. And, uh, you know, I told Biz mentioned the story. We were, the, the, the Bobcats were in the playoffs. They, they were, now they're the Hornets. They were the Bobcats at the time. Michael Jordan owned the team. And I was doing like, uh, I did like radio and radio sideline reporting. And I was down by the court. Uh, and it was the first playoff game in franchise history. And I, for the Bobcats and I was down by the court and Michael Jordan walked by me and he kind of just put his hand on my shoulder. He didn't know like, Hey Pete, what's up? It wasn't like that. It was like, Hey, I know you, you work for me. What's up, man. I'm trying to get to my seat. Uh, and I remember he patted my back and I was under the influence at the time. And uh, I remember being like, Oh my God, like, what well, you know, like what's going on, you know? And it's like, this is the greatest player of all time. He's a cool dude. He's just like, kind of, he's just being smooth. And the team that I worked for, you know, back as a PR guy, I worked there for the first year ever. 
Now they're in the playoffs. I'm broadcasting, which is my dream. And all I wanted was the vodka tonic to even things out, you know, and it's, that's where it takes us, you know? And, uh, you know, I ended up back at home and I was just now I'm 33 and I'm, and I try to go back to meetings again and I couldn't stop, you know, I was like unable to stop drinking. And that was so scary. And I, you know, my buddy tells a story, like I went over to his house. I went over to my friend Murph's house. He's sober too. I mean, he's a sober guy I talk to pretty much every day. Um, when we both weren't sober, he was like with normal people, like living a normal life. Like, and uh, I'd convinced him to let me over and uh, come hang at his house. And I showed up. This was a month before I got sober. I showed up with this girl I was dating. We, me and this girl should not have been dating one another. But we show up at his house. We create a scene. You know, as he tells it, like I broke up with the girl at the party. There's like normal people there at this party, you know. And uh, <laughs> people that aren't like me. And he's got this big, nice house. And I, he basically tells me and this woman to leave. And we leave and we back the car up into the creek at his house. So, and, and it was a long story, but there's other people that were showing up at his house. And he was like, you just got to leave, dude. Like, get out of here. And the next morning I went to his house and, you know, they're, they're taking this, a tow truck is getting this car out of a creek in his house. Cause we had to take a cab home. And I'm like, Hey man, can we like keep this between us? And he's like, dude, like, so I was I hold up with that girl. And somehow my brother, Michael, got her phone number and he called me on her phone. And that's one of those moments where you're like, oh my God, how does he have this girl's number? What is going on? You know, it's like, oh, she's like, it's your brother. I'm like, what? You know, my cell phone wasn't working anymore. Yeah. Yeah. My cell phone wasn't working anymore because I lost it when we went in the creek. Uh, and guess what? I wasn't paying the bill either. But when my phone rang, uh, you know, Young Jeezy played. I didn't have a job, I had no money, and my ringtone is Young Jeezy. So, I mean, talk about insanity. So, I, uh, my brother basically sat me down and was like, if you don't stop drinking, and he had my parents on board too. So we all sat down in the living room at my parents' house. He's like, you're not gonna see anybody. He's like, you're not gonna see me, you're not gonna see mom, you're not gonna see dad, you're not gonna see Lily, who's his daughter. And he said, and you're not gonna see Cade. And Cade was his stepson who he was having problems with at the time. And I remember thinking like, he didn't even want me to see Cade. Like, God, this is awful. That was like the, that was like the last straw, I think. So that's when I really tried to get sober. I, one night I went to a meeting and I was actually still drinking, but I was trying. And uh, this guy actually, Matt was like, hey, I'm gonna pick you up and uh, we'll go to a meeting. And he didn't want to go to a meeting. He took me to dinner. And we go to dinner at the White Dog in, uh, have a, in New Wayne. I think it was the White Dog. I was out of it. Um, and he's like, uh, you know, he tells me his story. And his story included going to rehab. And I, and I like this guy. I wanted what he had. And he's like, I think you should go to rehab. And I remember I was like, okay. And, I, that was, and, and the moment I said, okay, and I made that decision, I didn't stop drinking for another week because the typical alcoholic fashion, fashion, I'm like, give me one week, you know? And I made up some lie to go to Charlotte, North Carolina and party for like the last like week, um, which was a weird week. But uh, nonetheless, I came back home. And they say, too, in our literature in the big book, right? It's so crazy. You can try to, you know, an alcoholic um, in the late stages of addiction, his life is this or her. It's this big, right? Like it's big as your pinky. But like you're clawing and fighting to keep that life. That's the disease and the insanity of it. Like everybody, hopefully, um, is trying to give you help. There's so many hands reaching out and all you're like, I got it, I'm good. And your life is a disaster, right? And like that is so awful. And uh, the literature says, you know, let the alcoholic think it's their idea. And I went home from that dinner with my parents. I was like, I got an idea, I'm gonna go to rehab. And they were like, no shit. They're like, thank God. They're like, get in the car, you know? They couldn't get me there fast enough. And these, these the, my friends, the Rogers, who were affiliated with Karen, um, they got me, they got me like fast tracked as fast as I would allow. Um, and I had a bed there and uh, I went to Karen and my life completely changed. I mean, I want to go back to something. Yeah. Most people that are on the track you were on and everything's imploding around them, they don't really care. 
they're like, okay, next, I'm good, I'm good. And did you have any shame? There was no like, oh my God, I'm not one of them or, cause there's so much shame that's associated with addiction, right? There's so much, it's like the whole thing. I remember when people would talk about, I'm like an alcoholic. I mean, that's like, like I work for, like I got a job with, like, listen, you like even working with like Michael Jordan, like I am not one of those people that yeah. had, right? I mean, but you were, and how were you so accepting of that? Well, I got, I, I think I, I, I would explain it like this as if I had a nickel to leverage against getting sober, I would leverage that nickel. And, you know, one day I was totally out of nickels. I mean, I had, I had the gift of desperation. I had no money. I had no job. I was going to be cut off from everybody, you know, and, and I will say, look, it's not my, I'm not a therapist or, you know, a mental health expert, but I do know because I'd asked the therapist what the best thing is, you know, cutting off your family, as I was told, and as I experienced when your family, you know, cutting somebody off, that's really messed up. Like I was, uh, it's, I mean, it worked for me. I hate to say that because I don't, it's different for everybody. But when my parents were like, Hey, well, you're not going to see us. My brother was like, you're not going to see Cade. I, I was like, believe them. You were like, I, yeah. believe Michael, like I did, I I did. Believe, you believe Michael, like he yeah. was not trying to manipulate you. And he was just, no, 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 no they didn't want me around. Right yeah. I mean, Cause were they going to kick you out of the house? Cause so many people do this and the person's like, yeah, whatever. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Whatever, but I don't believe you. Yeah, I think like, and that's the thing. I believe they were. My brother Kevin was, he's, he's really good at being, I mean, he's one of my best friends in the world, but he's good at being a dick when he wants to. And he, he you know, both my, both my brothers are sober. And Kevin was a great example. He's like, look, dude, he's like, I'm not going to talk to you. He's like, until you get sober, he's like, I'm basically accepting the fact that you're, you're, you're a dead man walking. And, and, and those, that was like, that was hard to hear. So all these people really kind of, eventually told me how it was and that's what I needed. And the one recommendation too, that I got from somebody because you, you, you get these calls too, right? What do I do? My son is, can't stop drinking. How do, how do I get him help? You know, yada, yada, what's the plan? And you know, for me, I call people like you or I call another mental health professional and they say, I remember the best advice I ever got was like, just wait until the moment they come to you and say, I need help. Because if they're really that screwed up, at some point they will, they'll have a horrible night or they'll be completely broken and they'll say, I, I need help. And man, if you can, if you have the resources, have a game plan ready right then and there in place, the car's ready to go. We got you a bed here. We're going to make the phone call. We've had it reserved. Let's go. Cause if you give the alcoholic an, uh, 24 hours, they're going to wake up and be like, Hey, you know what? I'm good. You I know. know. How did you go for that week? I mean, you said you, I mean, they said, yeah. all right, we're going and you're like, I'll be back. I'll be back. You know what? And it, I, I, it kind of worked because again, it was like, and again, and again, I was really lucky that I didn't die during that week because I was in the I was in the red zone. But uh, I think that it was the fact that it goes back to like just let him. If whatever gets you there, you know, once somebody is accepting and makes a plan, whatever gets you where, like you hear the stories, like okay, well, the guy showed up to rehab. He was wasted. He drank a bottle of Jack. Who gives a shit? We got him there. He's, he's, he's in a rehab now, you know, like that was, I was, I was loaded when I showed up. My mom was like embarrassed. You know, this is the same woman who would clean up our house before the cleaning lady came. So dropping her son off to rehab being wasted. I'm like, rehab, who cares? Like, this is like, this is it. So to pick up that's, you know, this is when the recovery really, I get to rehab and my life starts to change. I just, I was, I was done. I was done. And I started to believe uh, I started to believe in a power greater than myself. You know, I was slow getting there, uh, but, but I did uh, because I knew that I wasn't the boss anymore. My best thinking had gotten me into a treatment center at 33 or 34. And, you know, one of my big, I talk about people like, you don't have to have, you don't need to be rich, right? You don't need to have a Rolls Royce. You don't need to have, a, you know, a condo in Palm Beach and, and a home in Rye, New York. What you need is self-esteem. Like, and, and, and so I started to do things, esteemable acts. And that, that gave me self-esteem. I couldn't believe it. I was doing the next right thing and I was feeling different. You know, a good example of that is that girl that I was dating, 
um, that I was with in the creek, you know, she came to visit me um, at the treatment center. And she was just, look, man, we partied. She showed up, she wasn't in good shape. And I was sober for two weeks. And I did not like the way it made me feel, like her being there. And I remember I was in the chapel at Karen and I was like, <sighs> I was like, God, can you, I was like, I need you to help me ask this person to leave, you know? And I was like, look, we can't do this anymore. Like, I, I need you to leave. And that was like so hard. I'd never done anything hard like that sober for a very long time, maybe ever. And uh, she got up and she walked out. I mean, look, I was no winner at the time on paper anyways, good for her. But she got up and she walked out. And when she left, I was like, oh my God, I feel good about that. Like she left, I, it was very hard to do that. So I was like, oh my gosh, it gives me self-esteem. I'm starting to get the feelings I got from getting screwed up, like by doing the right things. And, you know, the next example of that was when I went to, you know, you get done uh, and they're like at a rehab like that. And if you're like super fucked up, like I was part of my language, like they're like, you cannot go home. Like we need you to stay here. And uh, they recommended that I go to a, an extended care place. And I was like, you know, I battled for a little bit, but then I was like, okay. I'll go like whatever. And I went there and my life again, just continued to open up. I talked about, I went to a meeting today and talked about this, you know, I, I didn't have anything going. Um, but I was going to three meetings a day. I had a sponsor and, you know, in those recovery communities, it's like that tribal community. They talk about like old school Indians, like that tribe, that, that, like that power, that force that you get from the communal behavior. And that's what I got. And by being around those other people that wanted to talk about recovery, I continued to kind of feel fulfilled spiritually. And I was like, this is working. I am now getting the feeling I got from booze and drugs from talking recovery with other guys and, and maybe helping other people. And a good example of my willingness to turn everything over and actually go to any lengths was, you know, we had to get jobs there. And because you know this story, I was, I was like, I'm not getting a job because I saw guys were working at like, you know, McDonald's and like, you know, I'm 33 now. And I, I have a, I had a job. I was working in the NBA, you know, rubbing elbows with like, with big time people. And you want me to go work at a 7-Eleven? I'm like, it ain't happening, dude. And they're like, okay, like we're going to throw you out. And I was like, you know, I wanted to keep this job. I, I wanted to keep this thing going because I knew it was working. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the beginning of this story is the, it was basically January 1st. Uh, this place was outside of Baltimore. It was freezing cold. You know, and it was like, you know, you're spending New Year's in a friggin' halfway house. It's not like great vibes all around that day. And they're like, hey, who doesn't have a job? If you don't have a job, get out there right now and go find one. It's January 1st. Nothing's open. So we're walking around um, and we're just basically like loitering, you know, uh, for like four hours. And so we come back home and then January 2nd, they're like, well, you, you, you want, we want the, you guys out like a street team, find a job. So January 2nd, things are starting to, they're back open again. And uh, I was walking down the street and there was, this, you know, the big Statue of Liberty who waves outside this place called Liberty Tax, right? He's dressed like a statue. And I was like, you know, screw them. I'm going to get this job and really stick it up their ass. And I went in there and I couldn't get the job. The guy's like, no, like you can't work here. And, uh, and I was leaving and he goes, uh, hey, he said, uh, uh, do me a favor. He said, come back in a week he's like they usually quit you know I was like what the heck so I literally walked out of there and I went to a, I saw a Kentucky Fried Chicken and I was like let me go in there you know and I walked into the Kentucky Fried Chicken and this woman named Sharika uh interviewed me to get a job well first of all I filled out a, I filled out a, a, a an application and I got a call so I went back it was a process so I went back um and uh Sharika interviewed me and as I'm, as I'm giving, as I'm talking to this woman, she's like, why are you here? And I'm like, oh, like family, you know, you're making up lies. And she's like, she's literally like doing her nails while she's talking to me. She's thinking like, this guy's so full of it. And the reason is because Sharika, and this was like, you know, one of the many God winks in my life was an alum of a recovery house in that area. And now she was the manager at the KFC. And she was like, you know what? This guy's part of the recovery community. I'm going to give him a shot. And I started to, and then I got the job. Um, so I started to work at KFC, hold on, came back. Uh, I started to work at KFC and, uh, 
you know, first of all, I wouldn't let Sharik out from like out from like three feet because I was so scared because I didn't know how to work the register. The register is like the Millennium Falcon, you know, it's like trying to fly that thing. I was terrified. And it's like the fight or flight comes in. Like I literally, I'm 34 years old, 33, whatever. And there's a long line at KFC and I run to the bathroom because they don't know how to work the register. I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. They're like, dude, get back here. And, uh, you know, that and by the end of the time I was a KFC, I was screwing the people and playing jokes on them because, like I said, I was thriving in recovery. Uh, I was going to meetings. I had a sponsor. And uh, I, this one guy came towards the end of my time there and he was like, uh, he's being a real dick. You know, he's like, hey, what's going on? You know, he's a customer and I had the headset on and he's like, what, what's happening? What's what's the delay? And I was like, oh, sorry, sir. One of the chickens is loose in the back. We're just trying to corral it. He was like, you guys got chickens back there? I'm like, no, dude, relax. Like, we'll get to you in a second. Like, you know, and uh, that's the that's the change, though, right? I mean, and that that was from day one to like the last day of the four months stint working at KFC. And then, Biz, my life just really started to change. Uh, you know, I I, I I moved from that that area outside of Baltimore. I took a job, a guy, Stephen Smith, who owned a catering company. Um, out in, in New York City called Table Tales at the time. Um, he was like, hey, you can come work for me. He gave us, me and this other guy, Tim, who's still one of my best friends, still sober. Tim and I went to caring together. We went to uh, the, the extended care place together. Uh, and I think, I think you met him at one point. Uh, and then we went to, uh, we went to the, live in uh, Jersey City and worked for Stephen Smith for a while. And, uh, you know, I was going to a ton of meetings in Hoboken and New York City. I was just on fire with sobriety. I was going home. That's probably around the time I met you. Um, and I was believing in myself. And I started to reach out to my old contacts. One of the biggest breaks I got, I was kind of doing public relations for Table Tales, uh, Stevens Catering Company. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I got a job working back in the NBA under that umbrella. I worked for the NBA Development League. Billy King, who was the general manager of the 76ers when I was there, gave me an opportunity, helped me get an opportunity with his, he was a GM of the Nets at the time. So I worked for their developmental team, calling games, broadcasting them, which is always what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I went, I, after that opportunity, I, I ended up working for uh, the NBA a little bit. Like they would contract me. I worked Las Vegas Summer League uh, for a couple summers. I mean, one time, this is a kind of a cool story I haven't thought about in a while. I was at the Summer League in Las Vegas and Chris Mullen, who was open about his sobriety um, and his recovery, I knew Chris Mullen was sober. He's an NBA Hall of Famer. He played at St. John's. He played for the Warriors. He was in NBA front offices. At the time, he was working for the Sacramento Kings, and I needed to interview him about something going on during my work. So I interview him. We're talking, and he doesn't really, you know, he's like, okay, he does it. It fulfills his obligation. And we get done, and I'm like, Chris, you know, I'm, I was like, I'm an alcoholic. The camera's away. I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, I'm a year and a half sober. And, like, his eyes lit up. He's like, and I was like, he's, he's like, you getting the meetings out here? I was like, I was like, no, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. I haven't seen any. And he's like, oh, there's one. At, he pulls out an app. There's one at Harris. You can go. It was like, I was like, all of a sudden, it's like an alcoholic talking to another. And like, that is like, and that little like wink would like, those, there were so many of those things, as you know, that happened in your sobriety. Cause I was, I'd been in Vegas staying at the Cosmopolitan for like 10 days and I hadn't been to a meeting and I was like, I was literally asking another alcoholic for help. I was like, Chris, man, I'm jammed, you know? And he was like, get to a meeting, dude. And, I, and the next day I got to a meeting. Uh, and, uh, and the guy who picked me up, this is a great snapshot of AA, who picked me up at the hotel. Uh, oh no, I, I jogged to a meeting. This guy, Russ, drove me home and picked me up for the rest of the week, took me back and forth. Um, and that's like, that's, that's AA. And, you know, I went from working, uh, for the NBA, just doing some freelance stuff for them and the development league. And then I got a job back in Charlotte working for the Hornets where I got to go back there, you know, and I told you the story about, you know, just ripping through that place and losing opportunities. You know, there was one actual instance where I was back there sober, probably three years at the time or four years. And Michael Jordan walked by the hallway, down the hallway. And again, just like he would pass me before he was with another guy who knew my name. And the guy was like, Hey, what's up, Pete? And, and, and I was like, hey, Buzz, what's up? And, and, and Michael was like, what's up, man? What's up, Pete? And he slapped me on the back. And I was sober. And I was like, thank God. You know, like, talk about, like, another opportunity. So I have yeah. so many questions I want to get to. For one, I feel like 
when you were talking about being at KFC was when you really started to like yourself again. You were like, I know I'm all that in a bag of chips, but really I wasn't. I wasn't all that in a bag of chips. I was really deep down inside a drug addict. And here I am working at KFC. This is where my life has brought me to. I don't know what this is or what I'm doing, but I'm going to fall into it. And like when you told the story about the chicken, it was like that self-esteem came back, right? The life came back. And I remember your story because we all get to this place like I'm so busy. I can't make a meeting. I can't make a meeting, but Chris Heron gets put in front of you and you're like, holy shit, that is the answer going to a meeting. But our head will say no, right? My head says, no, I got this. Look at me, I got my stuff back. I, I got 10 days without a meeting, but by the grace of God, like Chris was put in your life. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and you hear that throughout your story. And I, I, I'm gonna fast forward us because we've been, I don't wanna keep everybody for two hours listening just because we could go on for two hours. Mm-hmm. but. I want to bring it up today and talk about how, you know, there's so, I want to bring back the shame because there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that don't go to 12 step meetings. And there's a lot yeah. of people out there in the world that don't want to go to 12 step. You know, AA doesn't have the best, best rap that's going out there in the world. We know that. And what do you think it was that kept you from telling people the truth about yourself? about the fact that you are an alcoholic and when, when I was in active addiction or, or you are today. And I think, cause I want to bring up the fact that you now have a podcast. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And that's, that's similar to this. And you were finally able to say, this is me. This is the whole piece. Yeah. Well, no, that's a great question. I, and you know, you were helpful with that. I was back, you know, I had, before I started to do TV news, I, you know, you and I had linked up when I was back in, in Philly and you had this theme, you know, sober, not ashamed. And, and you would have these speaking engagements where you were trying to break the stigma um, on alcoholism and drug addiction. And I would do some, some speaking during those, uh, during those events. And, you know, you joke about it and say nobody was there, but I was there and it, and it worked for me. I mean, I was really, uh, invigorated by that. And I, and it made me want to break the stigma, but as my career progressed, um, I was a little worried about it because I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not important enough in my, in my job realm, right? I'm a news anchor now in central Texas. I'm not on world news tonight where if I come out and I say, Hey, I was, if I tell this story, nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to like, like people are going to be freaked out. (laughs) Like I tell you tell normal people what I just told you, I mean, and I don't tell people in that graphic detail, you know, all the time, uh, ever, really. But um, I was worried about that. You know, there was a fear. Uh, and so I, I wanted to start a podcast. And I will say this. I talked to the general manager at my state. I talked to other alcoholics about it. I talked to the general manager at my station. I said, look, I'm looking to do this. And honestly, Biz, I didn't know um, the positive backlash or, or anything that will, not backlash, but I guess the positive wave of momentum that will come from the decision my general manager was like, do it. And I was like, I'm just going to interview other people. I'm not going to talk about myself. He was like, talk about yourself. He said, if you think you can help people, he's like, talk about your experience. And, you know, that's, they did, they actually did like an article on me here when I got, you know, and, and other news outlets picked it up. And, um, you know, I, people like you experience are like, thank you for, for, for opening up, you know, thank you because, you said it on my podcast, The Payoff with Pete, by the way, you can get it on all platforms. You said it, you know, so many people are like, you know, my brother, my sister, my daughter, my nephew, they are a drug addict or they're in recovery, but don't tell anybody. It's like, dude, we got to tell people, you know, like it's not. Now, if you tell me not to tell anybody, I'm never going to say anything. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it wouldn't hurt to, you know, it's not, it's not like somebody's a serial killer. They're sick. These are sick people. I was a sick person. There's no shame. You know, somebody asked me that recently. I was like, no, like they were talking to me about somebody they know and they're drinking a drug addiction. I was like, you're dealing with a sick person. It's, it's almost, unfortunately, you've got to picture them as somebody in a wheelchair with a debilitating uh, physical ailment that it doesn't, in, like, in, that keeps them from moving and functioning like they should. That's how bad this stuff is. Well, and it's interesting. I'll tell you that someone just said to me, I had, 
this person come to my house and she's going to help me do some stuff in my gardens, whatever. And she's like, she's like, I'm, she's, so she walks up the door and she's like, oh my God, I'm so glad I have a new friend and you're sober. Cause you know, everybody knows I'm sober. I tell everybody I'm sober. Like, yeah, yeah. I love that about you. I love, I love it. And she was like, well, I have so many friends that are alcoholics, you know? And I said, dude, I'm an alcoholic. I'm just sober. I am still an alcoholic, right? Deep down inside. And the fact that you've gotten to where you are today, it's just a testament that you can't give up, right? You can never give up. And never. you always have hope, right? Yeah, well, you always have to have hope and you have to, you have to keep going. You know, you have to keep, I'll, I'll say another, you just have to keep going. I mean, I want to show you something. Some, a friend of mine, actually, I did a podcast, the Dreamcatchers podcast, and they sent me this. Because I told him, I said, what's the one thing that you love? You know, the slogan. And I said, keep going. And they sent me this beautiful candle with the words, keep going on it. Uh, yeah, so I'm expecting a nice gift. For, and mine to you is in the mail, right? Yeah, After you did my podcast. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, that is, uh, that, that's it. Just keep going. Even, you know, in life after sobriety, too. I mean, because it's, look, you and I are pretty positive people. And we really try to accentuate the positive. And you know, we're lucky, Biz. When we wake up in the morning without any substances and stuff, I'm pretty positive. And not everybody's like that. And not, I'm not always like that. You know, I have to wake up at two in the morning for my job. I have some crappy days where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going around in, a, in, in like a fog. Uh, but I know the next day will come and I know I'll feel better. You know, your feelings are like the weather, a friend of mine said in sobriety, right? You, you, you can't control them and they always change. Like, and, and, and that's a God thing too. You just gotta turn it over to God. Um, you know, I could go on forever, you know that. You know, I just have to say, this has been so awesome. This is yeah. so awesome. And I want some the people to know that like, you did this, you were a drug addict, now you're on TV. It's like, it's possible. Yeah. Not I mean, tomorrow night. Street urchin, you know, not every person that's an addict is on the street, just so everybody knows. No. And, do this and you might not like your first meeting you go to i also i always like to point that out to people because people are like i didn't like that i didn't like the people there i felt weird but what happens if you don't like a meeting what do you do you go to the next meeting i mean so you, exactly. you go, it's like yeah you find another one and and literally the, the one more thing i'll say I'm, I'm calling baseball games tomorrow and sunday for espn plus here like in texas and like that's all like and those people know i'm sober you know it's just like i've i've been open about that with the folks I work with there. I mean, everybody knows and it's all good, you know? And, and, and yeah, I just keep showing up. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited about your podcast. I'm, I'm, yeah. really, I'm really excited for you. And I'm like, I'm excited for your whole life. I mean, we're so blessed. It's beyond control. And you know what, Pete, keep doing it. Okay. Keep going. It. Keep going. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah. I link to your podcast on my podcast and then people can go and watch you but until next time everybody keep getting busy living soba bye bye